Mr. Miranda. A girl was grabbed on 7th Street on Saturday night, right around the same time that you got out of work. Can you describe the man? Number one looks like him. Tell me everything. And don't leave anything out. I'm testifying. Are you sure about this? All rise. I don't want to see you become damaged goods. It's not just for me. The prosecution calls Patricia Ann Shumway. What about the next girl? Promise I'm going to put this guy in jail for a long time. The jury has found you guilty as charged. Hello, Ernest. John Flynn. Can you get me out of here? I believe I can. Aren't you going to ask me if I'm guilty? I'm far more interested in why you signed that confession. I know what you're trying to do. A man's as guilty as sin. The issue is whether this defendant's confession should have been allowed in evidence. It was coercion, plain and simple. There was not an attorney present. Don't make him the face of your crusade. What about Miranda's victim? I really don't care. Objection, Your Honor. Your Honor, you must stop this. You must stop this now. The cases before us raise questions. What if they say he's not guilty? The Supreme Court might make us retry him. The whole world wants nothing but to take from us. Miranda did not request counsel. Therefore, we reverse. And being locked away is the only thing that lets me sleep at night. Mr. Miranda, our justice system has afforded you every privilege, every protection. Hey! This is a courtesy not extended to your victim. Killer Casting. I'm your host, Lisa Zambetti, and I'm a casting director for film, TV, commercials, video games. Today, I am so excited to talk about a new film that's coming out. It's going to be across all major platforms starting October 6th. And I'm thrilled to talk to an independent filmmaker who is going to tell us his journey of bringing this really important story to life. It is a film that is called Miranda's Victim, and I want to ask him about the title. It's a very interesting title. But hey, why don't you introduce yourself? I'm George Colbert, and I'm the producer, and the story uh, Miranda's Victim is by me. I was finishing another screenplay, and it was mm-hmm. 2020, and I'm at my computer, and in the background, TV is on, and somebody's reading Miranda Writes. Mm-hmm. Some cop is meeting to some guy, and I said, very interesting. Let's see what this Miranda stuff is all about. What's the genesis of all of this? Mm-hmm. Turned out that I, I know I had a friend a long time ago that claimed he worked for Arizona on the Miranda matter. And so I started with the Supreme Court. Uh, then my friend, Lou, uh, was he involved with the Supreme Court? And I looked, I didn't see him, but I'm starting to read about the case and the decision. And then I go back to the Arizona Supreme Court. Uh, maybe Lou's involved with the Arizona Supreme Court decision and don't see him. But now I get further engaged in the story. 
And they'll say, holy mackerel, this guy is a rapist. This is what this is all about. This case is a serial rapist, in fact. And I'm right. uh, saying, and his name is Miranda. And, right. And, and, and I'm saying, hold on, Miranda. I thought Miranda was a victim. Exactly. Uh, so let's just let's go back for a second. So your film is about the true story of Patricia Weir, who in 1963 was kidnapped and brutally raped by Ernesto Miranda. This is in Phoenix, Arizona. So that's one aspect of it. And as you say, when you hear something called the, your Miranda rights, you might think if you don't know the backstory that it's about some victim named Miranda who perhaps was falsely accused or falsely convicted, who had his has his confession coerced without his lawyer present or was coerced by police. And therefore, now there is a, a law or a right that a suspect, a suspected offender, someone who's in custody must be given their rights, that they have the right to remain silent. They have right to an attorney to be present before they can be questioned by the police. So is that's have I got it right? Is that basically the nugget yeah, well, of the story? Yeah. yeah, the Fifth and Sixth Amendment rights. I'm working backwards because uh, I, I never really understood exactly where this was going to go. Initially, I, I looked at the story and I see he was not convicted once. He was convicted a number of times. He got a dishonorable discharge from the military. Right. And, and, and I got to tell you, I was in the Army. Um, and I can tell you this much, it's really hard to get a dishonorable discharge. You can get a section eight or medical or less than honorable. Dishonorable is really, you got to be a pretty bad guy to get a dishonorable discharge. And so I knew immediately that there's something here. There's more to this than meets the eye. I dug back more into it. I found out that he was a serial sexual assaulter. This particular victim, he kidnapped tied up, threw in the back of his Packard, drove her out into the desert for a 20-minute ride where he assaulted her, then brings her back near the place that he picked her up and, and dropped her off. And he stalked her, he stalked other people, and, and the, you're right, name is Ernesto Miranda. And I started looking more and more at him. I said, well, who's the victim? This, there had to be a case. There had to be a, an underlying case here. That went that that was initiated, and we dug into. We found a police report. Meaning, my niece and I, we just spent the time, the days, digging through reports, digging through transcripts, digging through high school records and marriage certificates, and the learn, learning about all the cast characters who are really true characters. And yeah, boy, oh boy, they all seem to come together. It, it is amazing how these different people came together to create the circumstances that we have today yes. in any event yeah exactly and i want to get to the casting um of these larger than life characters but something you said is really important to me george and something i love about the film is that this film is very victim focused instead of focusing on ernesto miranda you really focus in on patricia trish and her story who she was until this horrific assault happened to her. And in the role of Patricia, you have the beautiful Abigail Breslin, 
playing Patricia. And as her sister, you have the equally luminous Emily Van Camp. And then I'm focusing on the women for a reason. And then playing their mom is Murray Enos, who in my eyes can do no wrong. So shout out to your casting director, Nancy Bishop, who put this yep. cast together for you. But I really want to focus on those three women. And then, of course, Tara Manning also plays the offender's ex-partner who has a significant role in this. But Abigail's performance is just, listen, this is my wheelhouse. I cast a lot of roles of sexual assault survivors. And she plays this role with such delicacy and dignity. And she wears what I feel is really true to life, this shame, even though she's the victim and she has no reason to be ashamed, especially in 1963, is just a, such a huge burden to her, just being somebody who is so innocent. She's just an 18-year-old girl working at a movie theater. And one night she takes a bus home, gets off a little later than she normally does, and she's attacked. And as you say, she's not just sexually assaulted there. She's kidnapped, which is a whole other thing. She's thrown in a car, terrified, taken out to the desert, assaulted. And then strangely, which I would love to talk to my criminal profilers about this offender's behavior, brought back to the scene of her abduction and kicked out of the car and left there to just go on her, her way. It's a really, that's really shocking behavior, actually. I, I feel like she's lucky that he didn't kill her while he took her to a different location because that's usually what happens. But, and then, and anyway, you tell the tale of how she goes on from there and the reaction of her mother to her daughter's, to her sexual assault and the very different reaction that her older sister has. And I feel like those scenes, George, are for me the most compelling scenes of the entire film because you see Patricia's mom. What will you tell? You tell the story of, of those scenes. Uh, Patricia's mom does not want her to disclose to the police. So can you talk about that? Well, there's that? a, yeah, sure, I can talk about a, a lot of things. There's a lot to unpack here, but you first talked about how good Abigail was. Mm -hmm. And and I, I will tell you, Abigail herself, if you don't know, she was sexually assaulted. She makes no, no secret about it. And, and we're all just so proud of her because she just came out and she talks about her experience. But we knew that we needed a person that could have that visceral reaction that, you know, that could call upon the that previous, so I'll use the word bad experience and, uh, and mailed it correctly that, by the way, uh, the fact that I picked a female director yeah. was so necessary. And Abigail clearly was perfect. And a lot of the film festivals gave her uh, best actress. I have not heard a bad review of Abigail. She is compelling. And I can tell you what a hard worker she was mm -hmm. because some of those scenes, you really got to see it. Just, to watch it. They yeah, were just in... Brutal. They're brutal. Let's just uh, be yeah, honest. They're a, a lot of hard work on her part. And I can tell you that she was just so splendid, so professional, and, and she wanted to tell the story. But the story in and of itself is about a victim, Trish Weir, who tried to report the crime. She goes home and, and she's disheveled. And this is like at two o'clock in the morning, which is late for her. Just coming home from work and she's a teenager. Yeah. And after she's abducted, we can see that something happened to her. And, and her mother, she's, I'm going to say a little bit skeptical. She also know, even though it's true, 
1963, you don't report the stuff because what the woman would go through, yeah. his word against her word. And the other thing is that it's a man's world. Uh, the police were all men. The doctor was a man. Yeah. The polygrapher is a man. And they, at that time, to come out and speak against, and there were, we know, Miranda was a serial assaulter. At the K, yeah. and other women wouldn't even admit to the fact that we, we, police were scratching their heads. Why would they admit? They admit only so far. <laughs> yeah, you, you show been. that. Yeah, you show that really devastatingly that some of these women had been seriously injured by Ernesto Miranda, but they would only admit to being he stole their purse or he burgled them, but not to any sexual assault, even though the police suspected that he had indeed assaulted them. It was a time where you didn't want to be considered damaged goods, or at least that's yeah. what Ciola Murray, which portrayed Trisha's mom, was concerned. And, and it suggests she understood what women were going through. I love well, that. I, I don't want to say I loved it. I really appreciated that point of view. That So Murray Enos plays Abigail's mother, and the, the generational trauma that you can see that that she says basically that she that she was assaulted herself and she didn't get any help when she was assaulted and she doesn't see a way out for her daughter that there's any benefit to disclosing to the police or going down this road of trying to get justice and go after the offender i thought that was just incredible and moray's role in in different hands could be an unkind role. You could look at her as being, why isn't she supporting her daughter? Why is she so fixated on her daughter just not being damaged goods? Just get married, go to secretary school, get married, forget this happened, just suppress. But you understand from her point of view at that time in 1963 in in Phoenix, Arizona, that is so important to her daughter's future that she's not tainted by by this crime in any way. Oh, yeah. Uh, and she knows what's coming. She's going to be uh, humiliated by a male doctor in the middle of the night. No women around. There's no counselors. Mm-hmm. She's going to be interrogated by cops, and she's going to be questioned by a male polygrapher. <laughs> yeah. And all of them are suspicious. And what are you doing help walking home at 2 o'clock at night when how short is your skirt? Did, did you provoke? Yeah. Well, maybe it was even consensual. So that's that was the thinking in the 1960s. In the meantime, though, we have her sister who views things totally differently. First of all, she was extremely close to, to Trish. And, and Emily did such a great job. Yeah, she could great. feel her pain. All right. She could absolutely feel her pain. And she knew that it needed to be she needed to come out, one, to stop this from happening to other women, all right, or girls. Uh, and that also, it was cathartic in a way. She knew that once this was done, you needed to put this man behind bars, and Trish needed to have this done. Um, and Trish, you know, after the police reluctantly, uh, you know, uh, went and actually what triggered the police to believe Trish was that there were other instances. Miranda was out stalking people. (laughs) Right, right, right. So they put two and two together. It it happened to be in another precinct. So that information 
took a while to come together. But uh, right, all right. of a sudden, when they realized that this was happening in Phoenix elsewhere, they the police put two and two together, and then they believed Trish and put Miranda in a lineup, and and that's what started what we know as Miranda rights, actually. So many things I want to mention. I do want to mention the production design, your designers, Rick Butler and Lily Guerin. They just got this period to a T. It's this great candy-colored world out in the middle of the desert that just every all the attention to detail of the wardrobe, of the props, the television, the, st- the, t- the telephones, all of that stuff are just so well-drawn. I will tell you, one of the great things, at least for me, was that you, if you can see me, I, I know mm-hmm. nobody else can, but I'm really north of 70, all right? And I grew up in the 60s, and I loved visiting that period of time and remembering and looking at what was going on, looking at the news and what was going on at the time. I wanted, it was important to capture oh, the gosh. fact that you were in the 60s and in Phoenix, but you probably don't know, or uh, everything was filmed in New Jersey in my backyard. Mm-hmm. I did know right. that, as a matter yeah. of fact, yes. Yeah, and, and one of the first things I did was I went to the Antiquing Motoring Club of Monmouth County, and and they were all so great. They provided all the cars of the time, this background, so that had to be convincing. And we used the theater in Red Bank called Count Basie Theater, which is famous, mm-hmm. but it was uh, refurbished. It really looks like it did back in the 50s yeah. and the 60s. And we used an old police station in Middletown that they were just about to demolish. <laughs> wow, wow. I, I always said I was happy that, to use that because normally you have to repair all the work that you've done when you set it up. But uh, this police station, which was a courthouse, a police station, a jail, it, it, it was phenomenal. And then they knocked it down, which was good. <laughs> the other thing I loved about the direction, which is so nuanced and sensitive, Nowadays, we are much more trauma-informed on how to speak to a victim, on how to get the story out of them in a way that doesn't re-traumatize them. And as you were saying that the police, the doctor who did her quote-unquote rape kit, they were all just, they didn't, they fumbled in handling her in some ways. And that not every victim can perfectly remember every single detail because they're dealing with their trauma. And so I thought that Abigail's performance and the way that you coaxed it out, that she slowly starts to remember more things and is more helpful to the police, but she's not a perfect witness. And I think that's that's a really complicated road to to maneuver in in a case like this, because there was correct me if I'm wrong, but there wasn't any physical evidence. He didn't have ejaculate that they were able to collect or and there is before DNA evidence. So. It was really her memory and them trying, the police trying to put together the pieces. Were there any people who witnessed her abduction or getting on or off the bus? Right. So it's really based on her recollection. The truth of the matter is, it's when it comes down to this, it's he said, she said. And she thought in the lineup it was him, was not 100% sure. The reality is that it's what driving the whole case is he voluntarily confessed. And the confession is really what what put what put him in jail. You, you don't have to believe Trish. You should believe Trish. She thinks it's him. She saw him. She wanted to hear his voice to make sure. But she thinks it's him. But thinking it's him is just not a high enough standard, even yeah. back in the 1960s. But thinking it's him with 
the voluntary confession. And the confession arguably was voluntary. It wasn't beat out of him. In the olden days, they would, they, they would take a blackjack, they would take a hose, they would try and do that. That This wasn't the case. Um, and, but he, and, and this is how the viewer decide whether or not it was a voluntary confession. Well, but, yeah, and this is a really important point because coercive confessions do happen. Why would he confess? Why would he just confess? What are your thoughts about that? Well, as the Supreme Court decided, it was not necessarily, even a voluntary confession without an attorney present can't be voluntary. How can you understand what your rights are without an attorney telling you right against self-incrimination, commonly referred to as the Fifth Amendment, and the right to an attorney, commonly, which is the Sixth Amendment? And the Supreme Court ruled that you have to let people know before they confess that, A, they have a right to an attorney, all right? And then everybody knows if you have an attorney present that you're not going to confess because the very first thing they're going to do is not confess. Yeah. This created a dilemma. Uh, yeah. The Supreme Court Justice's 5-4 decision, by the way, came out and ruled essentially in favor of Miranda and had to have the first conviction to lost. Yeah. It is, it is really important because we do know that people do go to jail who have been falsely identified by a witness who thinks that they're telling the truth and they think that they've ID'd their offender. And very there are some very famous cases where people have been put away falsely and then later DNA evidence helps to exonerate him. But in this case, and I'm interested that it doesn't seem like the trial, maybe you can correct me, but in the original trial, did they bring up his past offenses that he was a peeping Tom and that he escalated his behavior time and time again? Yeah. Pretty much wasn't necessary once he confessed it, 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 at that point in time, the the lawyers and the prosecutors were together. I got a confession. All right, we're going to find him guilty, and I think he was found guilty in a couple of hours. So they really didn't have to discuss much. They just used Trisha's testimony. I think we don't have it in the movie, but Sister Anne testified about Trisha's condition. But clearly, the the thing, the linchpin to the whole thing was his voluntary confession, which is read word for word, you know, in the uh, exactly as he confessed police report. You get a lot of these details are just so fantastic. When I first saw Sebastian Quinn, who plays Ernesto Miranda, I saw him on screen. I was like, he looks awfully attractive to be. He looked a little to me like a very Hollywood kind, very commercially attractive. But then when I looked at the actual photos of the real Ernesto Miranda, including the real lineup, you, wow, they could just be absolutely twins. All of those guys in the lineup, the real lineup that Patricia had to look at. And Sebastian, it just looks scarily accurate. So that's amazing. Sebastian Quinn, especially, is, we all know, you, you recognize all the other actors. Clearly, Andy Garcia, Abigail Breslin, Ryan Felipe, Luke Wilson, Ray Anos, you talked about Emily Van Camp. Sebastian Quinn, relatively unknown. Mm -hmm. I originally looked at his audition tape, all right, and somebody instructed him to to play a bad guy. You're a criminal. You're this. They'll they, they define the character. So he did. He picked up some words. He just ad libbed something, and it came across like he was from The Sopranos or something like that. I said, "Oh, that is not the character." Miranda is a charming guy. I right. Nice guy know, offender. But he was, he stole cars and did all kinds of other bad things. And he was a violent guy. But, but Sebastian Quinn, I really think he captured the real, he wasn't a gangster kind of guy. Mm -hmm. Just wasn't that way. 
So, yeah. Yeah, no, I think he did a great job. He definitely has that baby face. But let's talk about the rest of the cast that kind of orbit the core family. So you have, I want to say, traditional uh, courtroom drama, but it goes into the, the courtroom, how it all went down. And you're surrounded by these great actors. Luke Wilson, who is, he's the prosecutor. Luke Peter. Wilson was prosecutor Tura, yes. And then Miranda is being defended by the great Andy Garcia, who... And, and this is what's great about your film is that he doesn't play this quintessential bad guy defense attorney. You can see why he feels badly for his client. You can see why he thinks that something wrong happened in the processing of his client. I should mention Enrique Murciano, who I love from Bloodline. He's just he's just really great as the the, the he and Brent Sexton as the detectives. Oh, gosh, they were great. They were great. They were. Yeah, they were. They had a great rapport. Miranda is convicted of rape uh, and sentenced, but then later he loses an appeal. But then his case gets taken up by the Supreme Court and you cast I mean, Ryan Phillippe, who's becoming such a great character actor. He is this, um, you know, ACL appointed attorney who's going to take this case. And by the way, it wasn't just Miranda's case that went in front of the Supreme Court. Miranda was like about four cases clustered together were were reviewed by the Supreme Court about the rights of a suspect. And Ryan just takes this role and he just rides it to the finish line. It was just a really great performance. And you need that. You need these anchors in your film. Do you want to talk about that? I imagine that they were all well, offers. I imagine Sebastian was the only one who actually had to audition. That, I'll start off Andy Garcia. And he was one of the first days that we, we filmed in this little courthouse because it was the first trial. He plays Alvin Moore, and Alvin Moore is character in the real world. He was in both world wars, and he understood justice, and that's what he wanted. But I can tell you, Andy Garcia shows up in the courtroom that we have all set up for a scene, and he looks at me, and he starts challenging <laughs> the script. Oh, boy. It turns out apparently he played a judge in some other movie and our direction was a little bit different. That said, I said, this is, this is really the way it was. And they looked at me, hey, listen, George, you really don't, you don't have a, a lot of background in movies and script writing. So I called my friend up who is a judge. Said, all right. <laughs> and, and, and he helped advise guide all of the scenes and he walks in. And uh, my friend talks to Andy and he tells Andy exactly, this is where you would stand when you're arguing. You want to look at the jury, but you want to be stand right next to the witness when you start questioning her. Miranda never, never was on the witness stand for any trial, but it was really good. And Andy, Andy got it all. He got it. And he was really respectful. He added to it because he understood the importance of the role. Yeah. And, but he added to it. I know just because I've done so many independent films, but you don't have the big pockets of a studio movie and you have to spend your dollars very wisely. You really have to strategize who you're going to invest in to play. And, uh, clearly, Andy Garcia is an incredible investment and you have to figure out how long you're going to keep him for because that's really your currency, right? Yeah. Maybe you only had him for one or two days at the most. And But I was, but it was really great to see Ryan Phillippe, Luke Wilson, and Kyle McLaughlin, I'm sure you only had for one day. That was, those are such great just signposts to put in your film to just give it just lots of credibility, lots of richness. And, and I know that it's hard, but you have to 
make some hard investments in that yeah. talent to get them to be well, there, to come to New Jersey in your backyard, show up. Well, I can tell you, we were originally not going to film in New Jersey. We were mm -hmm. looking at uh, New Mexico. We, we, Arizona wasn't going to work, even Phoenix, Arizona, because we were trying to capture the 1960s and they modernized. Uh, so it didn't right. even make any sense. The New Mexico seemed to make sense to us because they also had some incentives. Coincidentally, just about two months before we started to, to film, New Jersey passed some incredible incentive. Oh, that's good to know. Film it is up the there. best. It is the best in the country, largely designed to bring Netflix in because Netflix is actually going to build seven or eight studios mm -hmm. right in Monmouth County, which is where I live in New Jersey. Let me tell you something. Without that, this would have been very difficult. But yeah, we have that in place. We had some other people that were that were very enthusiastic about the movie. It, it, it's a story, and and you yourself went through this. But everybody says, "Oh, I didn't know that." Hey, this is important. Uh, this is people need to know. And the actors, they all understood it, and they got behind it. And, and we have other people. I think the thing that was, as I said, I, I didn't do it for fame. I, I told you, I'm north to seventy already. Right? But I think we and, and and Trish herself and everybody and the cast was so good and supportive. Everybody knew that this was an important story to tell. And, oh, uh, absolutely. And I love the coda at the end where you show the real people's photographs and you show you with the real Trish. And so I've, did you have to find her first and get her life rights before you started this process? Or did you write well, something first and show it to her? Or how did it, that go down? I actually had a, the whole script pretty much written. And in the meantime, I was searching for her. And it was June of 2021 that I tracked her down in New York. And so I brought my wife with me. I knew where she was going to be. And I said, here's this woman I'm going to go up to. I'm fully expecting to go to her home. It's going to slam the door in my face. So, and I said, Trish, first thing, I want you to know something. You're a hero. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to be telling a story about you, all right? I really want you to tell me exactly what happened and, and what's been going on for 60 years. This, you, you, you haven't sent anything in. Nobody knew who you were or where you were. Or they didn't even, the name wasn't even out there. Um, and she, we got her comfortable, meaning my wife and I got her comfortable to talking a little bit about it. And it turns out she never told her family. Nobody ever knew. She kept it a secret. Oh, oh my goodness. For 60 years. Um, I think she was very interested in what I knew because I already said that I'm going to be telling the story, but I want to make sure I get it as right as possible. And I had the story wrong. The relationship between she and her husband was wrong. The fact that I thought they were Mormons, I got that pretty wrong. And a lot about her recollection. She deliberately suppressed things for mm -hmm. 60 years because she had no choice. Yeah, of course. And there was no other alternative. And she was successful in that. She went into obscurity. She's a wonderful person, a great human being. And it took a little to convince her that I needed her to tell the story. I wanted to tell a better story through her eyes. And uh, she and her, especially her daughter's grandson, but the daughters and granddaughter understood that this was an important story to tell. One of, one, of, one of the things is we had a subtitle that we didn't use. 
hashtag before Me Too, there was Trish. And so I think everybody these days getting to appreciate the importance of the story being told properly. And I think we did that. But I do too. I really applaud how victim-focused it is. And there's so much more to the story after his conviction yeah. is overturned by the Supreme Court. It's just a really amazing film. And for a lot of reasons, especially for the female, the portrayals of, of victims and the, the women in, the, in this story, I think are very important voices to hear. So I want to congratulate you. So people will Where be able to see to be. it for a limited release in theaters, but right. then it's going to be available on demand on all the major platforms. So people should really keep their eye out for Miranda's victim. And thank you, George, for coming to speak to us about the process, as I'm just so impressed that you keep saying that you're north of 70, but you're never too old to be an indie filmmaker. It's a really hard road, but you, when you're passionate like you are, when you have a great story, I just wish you all the luck in the world with this. Thank you so much. So for now, this is Killer Casting signing off. Killer Casting is a concept created by her, Lisa Zambetti. It is produced by me, Dean Laffin. Logo art by my beautiful wife, April Laffin. Audio editing by him, Sean at choicevoiceproductions.com. And our theme music, We Are Beautiful, comes from them. That would be Hollywood Legends Amphibious Zoo Music. Until next time, Killer Casting out.